Welcome to the ACFCS Financial Crime Cast, a briefing featuring the latest in news, analysis, and guidance across the financial crime spectrum. I'm Brian Spoda-Kindle, VP of Product Development with ACFCS, and on this episode, I'm honored to be joined by a towering figure in the financial crime and national security space as we explore the growing intersections between national security and fin crime. From the financial flows behind the terrorist attacks of 9-11 to the modern focus on state-sponsored cybercrime, financial crime has become inextricably linked to national security over the past 20 years or so. And during that entire time, James, who goes by Jim Dinkins, has been at the vanguard of this intersection. Dinkins helped establish U.S. Homeland Security investigations over a decade ago and served as the agency's first director. While quite an achievement, that was only the capstone to a long and distinguished career over 30 years in federal law enforcement. Now president of Thomson Reuters Special Services, he's bringing his years of experience to bear on the evolution of national security in the U.S. and how it connects to the future of financial crime compliance in this episode. We'll explore key areas of national security focus in the present and near future, the vital importance of public-private partnership in combating fin crime and cyber risks, how social media has become the new frontier for terrorists, and most of all, what all this means for you the professionals in AML, sanctions, and counter-terrorist financing roles who are listening in. Jim, thank you so much for joining us on the Financial Crimecast. It's a real pleasure having an a, a interviewee of your caliber on the program. Uh, I'm very excited to have this conversation. This has been a topic on the mind of many of the financial crime compliance, law enforcement, regulatory professionals in our community. Um, so it is a, it's a pleasure and it's an honor to have you join us. My pleasure, happy to be here. Excellent. Well, uh, many in the community, I think, I think know you, know your name, um, may have even uh, met you or interacted with you, heard you speak in the past. Uh, but many of our audience has it, and we do haven't, and we do have a, a fairly international audience. So let's start by just talking about your background, particularly uh, your work with Department of Homeland Security and uh, and Homeland Security investigations, because it's it's incredibly relevant for the the topic that we're exploring today. So do you mind telling us a little? little bit of, uh, of, of who you are, where you're coming from, and some of the highlights of the, uh, the long and illustrious career you've had? Absolutely. Um, so I, I started um, basically right out of college with the federal government in an internship at, that led to becoming a special agent with the United States Customs Service at that time, and that was in the late 80s. Um, over those years, you know, my, my responsibility was investigating cross-border criminal activity, which was primarily in those days, drugs and drug money laundering, as well as some the illegal export of technology. Back then, uh, you couldn't, the power of your cell phone today, that, that technology did not exist, but had it exist would not allow to be exported, right? So those are the three primary areas that I focus in as a, as a special agent with U.S. Customs Service. Later, when 9-11 hit and the horrific terrorist attacks on the U.S. soil, as we all know, DHS was created. When DHS was created, my role as a custom special agent was rolled into ICE and then later Homeland Security Investigations, which was formed in 2010 um, by consolidating all of the investigative responsibilities, both internationally, domestically, as well as the intelligence 
apparatuses to form Homeland Security investigations to kind of bring the both global reach to protecting the homeland and investigations of transnational criminals, as well as um, the domestic capabilities and the intelligence that brings those two together. And so from 2010 to 2014, when I retired, I was the head of Homeland Security Investigations. Excellent. Thank you for that. And now with uh, with Thompson Reuters Special Services and continuing to do uh, to do great work in the uh, in the private sector. Uh, so thank you for that that background. You know, I, you mentioned that that in your early in your career, you started out really looking at, um, you know, cash, illicit financial flows related to drug trafficking. Um, and I think that's been a trend for maybe a lot of the folks out there that have had a longer career here, that there was a lot of focus on, you know, illicit cash, particularly from organized crime, drug trafficking organizations. But, you know, one of the things I've really found remarkable uh, working with uh, Homeland Security investigations over the years is just the sheer breadth of uh, illicit activity that that uh, HSI takes on and the kind of broadening of the scope of what's considered, you know, financial crime writ broad over the years. Uh, and I'm wondering how you saw that play out in your in your career at HSI. Was there a sort of, you know, more narrow focus that got ever more expansive as it seems like there is looking in from the outside? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and I definitely saw the trend of drug money laundering shifting from Colombia, which was the largest producer and importer at that time, shifting over into Mexico, which became the distribution point in the United States. And really Mexican cartels took over the command and control of the importation and distribution within the United States. And ultimately, globally so that shifted the money dynamic as well and alleviate a little bit of the pressure back on the on the um, Colombian BMPE but at the at the grassroots of it regardless if you're what type of criminal organization you are the techniques that are used are very common so you have very unsophisticated criminal organizations both drugs as well as intellectual property thieves you name it they will morph their drugs and their illicit proceeds in cash, for example, with cash carriers bringing in and out of the United States, all the way to very sophisticated, you know, um, trade-based money laundering schemes, which require a level of sophistication to be able to convert your cash into a commodity in the United States, distribute it globally to be sold, and then those proceeds end up in the hands of the criminal organizations that ultimately generated in, in the United States. So there's a whole level of sophistication. I would say the greatest, the greatest um, change is just a rapid, not only the obviously digital currency, right? But the financial institutions, the economy has become global in nature, right? I mean, what once was, um, uh, you know, local crime is now global crime. But our, that's because of our economies become global, the things that we consume in the United States. That opens up our borders, opens up trade, opens up vulnerabilities, and criminal organizations just seek to exploit each one of our advances. They seek to exploit that. And our financial institutions are global in nature today as well. They have to be because businesses are global. So they have to be able to serve them wherever they're doing business, from anywhere from the United States to another country, London, you know, China, wherever that may be. They have to be able to have the ability to service those customers wherever they're doing business at. And seldomly is there a company sole dependent on anything just in the United States. Uh, no, it's very, it's very true. And I think it's a great point about, you know, uh, 
even at the local level, you have these kind of tendrils out to global financial crime issues. Um, and I mean, you know, we saw that very vividly during the pandemic with things like uh, unemployment fraud, where, you know, you had states all over the country offering unemployment fraud, and they were being targeted by cyber criminals and fraudsters all around the world. You had Russian groups taking advantage of it, groups in uh, in Eastern Africa taking advantage of U.S. Uh, unemployment fraud. And, you know, there are these state agencies that, yeah, we're just uh, uh, trying to provide relief on a state level. So uh, very, very much, uh, you know, a global, a globalized world in in both the business and the financial crime sides of things. Um, and that that plays into my next question. Um, and you even kind of touched on this already, but uh, you mentioned the 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 nine eleven terrorist attacks and just a you know incredibly horrific day for. Uh, for those in the United States and all over the world, and I think particularly resonant for a lot of folks out there this year um, due to the events in Afghanistan and, and other issues. Um, where do you see the future of American homeland security evolving? Um, so, you know, there was the initial period where HSI, uh, DHS was really founded and, you know, uh, its scope evolved. And um, where, are we, where are we going next? What, what do you see on the horizon? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I retired from as the head of HSI in 2014. Um, and over the last seven plus eight years, um, I have worked at both Thomson Reuters as the president and we provide um, analytical data science capabilities, technology and and um, and unique content to the law enforcement, Department of Defense and Intel community, as well as our commercial customers. So I see it firsthand continuing today from a different lens as a supporter of the of the people on the front lines, but also having spent three and a half years at one of the largest, fifth largest financial institution in the United States, I saw the challenges that you face and actually trying to detect something with billions of transactions and trying to pick out the needle in the haystack when you're dealing with the volumes of, of legitimate transactions that a financial institution sees. So I think the challenges have grown because of the dynamic ability to move money nearly instantaneously versus before, the capability to move it in locations faster and quicker than ever before, but also because the, the crime that we and the, and the organizations that we face today have become more and more sophisticated and able to buy technology themselves. And I think ISIS is a great example of that. ISIS couldn't have existed in the form that they do today 20 years ago because the internet wasn't in the homes of everybody globally. So for example, we have more you know, data enabled and, and internet connected devices in the world than we do have people. So that provides criminals a completely different perspective on how to infiltrate our homes how to how to facilitate crime so it's a very uh it's a very daunting daunting uh challenge that we face today both from a law enforcement perspective a homeland security perspective from a financial institution perspective um as well as just i think that um a collective um body of people trying to do good it's a challenge 
Yeah, uh, uh, it, it is absolutely daunting is the right word. <laughs> and then the more you learn about it, the more you realize like uh, uh, what we're up against. Uh, but, you know, the flip side of that, that some of the aspects that you, you pointed out there, for example, the, the volumes of data um, that you have to comb through um, or emerging payment methods like uh, cryptocurrencies. You know, the flip side of that is that as an investigator, I would imagine, you know, and you tell me, having done this work, that uh, the the data and the richness of the data and the, the variety of data that you have available to you, you know, in an investigator analyst role um, is, is so much is so much uh, more than you would have ever had in the past, right, when you were trying to come through paper records or whatever the case may be. So, um, you know, while we're up against greater sophistication and, you know, new payment methods and that type of thing, do you also have a situation where, you know, you have more tools in your toolkit, so to speak? Absolutely. And, um, you know, for every challenge becomes an opportunity, right? So um, back in the day, you know, um, you'd roll into a search warrant as an investigator and sees a bunch of financial records in boxes, cart them off, and now you're looking at paper. We had whole teams that were, were we call them DocX, right? They would go and scan those documents in just so we could try to deal with the volumes of them and search through them. Well, today, the, you're no longer seizing traditionally those volumes of paper records. You're seizing digital data. And with digital data provides an opportunity to apply analytics and search capabilities that you would never be able to do with a truckload of paper. So uh, that, I think that with, that's just one example of, of being able to have an opportunity. Now it takes some level of sophistication from law enforcement. It takes the ability to develop some tools, you know, and I think that this goes back to both law enforcement and private sector and the importance of and the interdependency within with them working together. Um, I can tell you, I did financial investigations um, black market peso exchange dealing with very sophisticated Colombian money laundering organizations. And in my career, I looked at a lot of subpoena records, a lot of subpoena um, financial records. When I was in the banking industry, one investigator working in my shop in one week would look at more financial records than I did in my entire career, right? There's a level of sophistication and understanding of what is normal and abnormal that an investigator would take years to develop that they get trained up really, really quick because it's, you know, feast or famine. You, you're getting hit with all kinds of data as an AML investigator. So them coming together with third-party technology to apply that on there, there's some great opportunities and a lot of advancements that are that are happening today that did not exist just five years ago in the AML space and not only just AML, but fraud itself. Um, and I think fraud is the new frontier, right, as, as the fraudsters – you don't have to earn it. You just have to steal it. And it's a lot easier to steal than it is to have to earn it through some type of illicit trade. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and we see fraud on, you know, really becoming a an integral aspect of all sorts of, of criminal organizations these days, right? So we see some terrorist organizations engaging in fraud or, you know, so-called lone wolves um, self-financing their activities through fraud or, uh, you know, the tr sort of traditional transnational organized crime groups getting into the fraud and cybercrime arena. So uh, it's just, it's really interesting to see those kind of threats evolve. And, you know, we talked about the, the widening of scope at DHS. I'm wondering if, you know, um, as we on the financial crime prevention side, you know, 
break down some of the silos and, and take a more converged approach to financial crime prevention, are you seeing the same thing on, on the commission of financial crime, right? Are you seeing groups that might have done, you know, more segmented activities kind of blur the lines between them now? Um, is, it, is, is that also happening on the, the bad actor side? Yeah, I, absolutely. You know, and it's, I think it's, it's important to remember that criminal organizations are just that. They're, they're criminal organizations. They're very much like the yesterday's Al Capone, right? They're, they will <laughs> exploit and earn money any way that they can. They don't have the boundaries of legality or even borders anymore. So um, you might be one day um, counterfeiting goods and the next day um, taking advantage and setting up a, a, a call center to take advantage of the elderly. You know, these are not exclusive. These are just different business opportunities. Fentanyl, who we all know is so deadly in this cause of virtually a uh, epidemic in this country, the number of deaths. For the first time in decades, the average male's life expectancy has gone down, partly because of the number of overdose from um, fentanyl and opioids. Well, the... Mexican cartels never dealt with fentanyl before, but as soon as it became there was a demand and availability, they quickly shifted and started becoming a major distributor of that in the United States because it's just a business opportunity. So when they see that opportunity that there's a new commodity or a new way to earn money, legitimately or illegitimately, they're going to take advantage of it. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. Um, so we, we, we've talked about some of the, you know, the threat actors, we've talked about um, some of the, you know, both challenges and opportunities. Um, on, the, on the national level, um, how and where is, is the nation, and we're in the U.S., um, we do have an international audience, but we're talking mostly about the U.S. here. Uh, how and where in the nation, uh, how and where is the nation bolstering uh, its homeland security enterprise? How do you see this playing out on the national level? Yeah, you know, I think it's in it. We're, you know, unfortunately, our nation and actually the globe. um, So it doesn't matter what country you're in, you're getting hit from all fronts, right? We have state sponsored cyber attacks, we have sophisticated criminal cyber attacks. So we have people trying to infiltrate our our systems. We have people trying to to surreptitiously get into those for different reasons. But it literally, we are in a cyber warfare being being attacked constantly. It is endless. And anybody on that side of the of the um, of the defense apparatus within a private company or the government knows the volume of attacks. Um, then you have the social engineering attacks. I mean so there's this there's this constant attack from digitally, but there's also the 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 challenges of homegrown terrorism, international terrorism. Now, on top of that, there's challenges of, of human trafficking, sexual exploitation, forced labor, you know, um, sophisticated gangs operating in one street that actually has that have, um, you know, um, command and control structures in South Central or Latin America. So the, the homeland in, is being is being attacked on all fronts. And, you know, the one role that DHS has in all of that is to defend on all fronts, right? They don't do it alone. They do it in partnership with industry. They do it in partnership with our fellow law enforcement or their fellow law enforcement and the FBI, DEA, Secret Service, CBP. So it is a very, um, you know, ring of defense 
that our country is depending on. And uh, it doesn't end just at the computer. It has to end at your front door and it has to end in your community protecting you from people that as you walk out are surely going to try to take advantage of you for some way. Um, and that may be on your computer through an email that you just won uh, a lottery or through a phone call that we just heard most recently from your bank that there was a, a, a problem with your account and they try to uh, um, solicit PII information out of you. So it's, it's, it's a daunting process, but it, but it does have, and I think that we've been very successful in many ways, collectively as a community, defending ourselves by all working together. That's a, that's a really interesting point because, uh, you know, uh, you're drawing a parallel or a, a really a direct line between um, protecting yourself and actually, you know, protecting national security on some level from, you know, these fraud and financial crime threats, right? So, you know, by ourselves individually being savvy and aware and skeptical um, and educated on on the financial crime risk we face at some level you know we're we're engaged in the larger enterprise of uh, of supporting national security so yeah it's an interesting thought it's not it's not a direct connection I've really made but I think it's a I think it's very true um, you've you've touched on this in in some of your in, in some of our previous um, uh, discussion but I, I want to go a little bit deeper on the subject of you know how the private sector the corporate world um, supports these national security um, efforts and you know, I'm wondering from your perspective and you know your role from from both sides of the, the fence public and private so to speak um, what role does corporate America and the private sector play um, in advancing public safety and specifically around some of the issues that we're talking about on the you know the fraud side um, and the the financial crime awareness side how do they drive that awareness how do they bring it to you know their customers their client base their employee base that type of thing yeah, no, and that's a that's another great question, and and it's often I think something that we have to be reminded of, and and everybody has to be reminded of in in quote unquote corporate America. Um, but it's you know the old saying you see something say something um, that came out after nine eleven, and that that's actually so true, and um, because it is a shared burden responsibility um, that is just not on our warfighters and our law enforcement to keep us safe. It, it takes a, a holistic approach. And often the financial crime section, which is demanded through different legislation and regulatory obligations, often can be, can, can be seen by those involved in that apparatus and that, and that ecosystem is a, is, a, is a mandate versus a necessity. And, and I think that that's, it's important to remember that people on the corporate America side that are involved in, in, con in protecting a financial institution from fraud and its customers from fraud, because they're going to go after the customers as well as the financial institution. And um, as well as from, from identifying and, and reporting potential um, terrorist financing or money laundering, it's important for them to remember that those, uh, you know, ecosystems were created to support law enforcement in their public safety and national security mission. Yes, they need to protect the financial institution from losses. They need to protect the customers of those institutions. They need to have, maintain reputational risk because you don't want to bank one of the 19 hijackers of September 11th, right? Um, but it's more than that. It's, it's that ecosystem was created to support law enforcement and make it harder 
for criminals to take advantage of our commercial companies and, and financial institutions. So I think it's just important for people to come together and realize that, that they are part of, and they're at the spear, they're at the tip of the spear. If you're a bank teller in some of the best cases that come in to an AML investigation or a fraud investigation, elderly abuse is from a teller on the front lines interacting with a, with a customer and seeing the duress that that customer might be under if it's an elderly person, or even if that person is being trafficked and being forced to go in and open up in a bank account to be used to launder human trafficking proceeds. Those, so it's, it's a really a holistic um, approach that has to be taken. And I think that people understand it's a, it's, it's a blessing to have the ability to, to get up each day and work on the front lines of protecting national security and public safety. Yeah, I think it's a great point, and it's really a uh, a great way of looking at it. It really is a uh, it really is a an honor and a blessing to be able to play a role in this. Um, and so, you know, for all the listeners out there, I think uh, they should feel encouraged by the work that they're doing and the way that they are. Um, you know, whatever for whatever, uh, uh, however small the efforts may sometimes feel, they are contributing to the the greater good of the whole. Um, I want to revisit. Uh, an answer, um, a previous topic, and that we touched on earlier, and that's that's uh, you know you mentioned that that they're really in almost like a, a cyber cold war right now, or maybe not so cold war, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, and some of that is playing out, you know, in the, the intellectual property theft space. Some of that is playing out in like active cyber attacks um, via ransomware or other tools. Um, but a lot of it is playing out on the social media front, particularly when we talk about uh, terrorist financing. And and terrorist recruiting and other terrorist-related activities. So, um, you know, why has social media, and by extension more broadly our digital lives, um, become the the new frontier of terrorism? Yeah, you know, and um, and really ex- terrorism and extreme extreme extremism at large. You know, I was just talking with somebody earlier, and um, you know, uh, you may have. 20 years ago, you may have had a kind of a, a, a radical ideal in your mind, right? But you knew the people that you were talked about and talked to didn't, you, you received no affirmation that that was, that that was acceptable. And you placed yourself because you're like, all right, I'm obviously I'm out there. There's some, I, I have different beliefs than, than everybody that I've talked to. I'm getting no affirmation that, that my belief is, is correct. And um, because nobody else is sharing that with me, the Internet, social media provides an opportunity for no matter how radical your mind is and that far fetched idea that you might have from a global conspiracy, from the government all the way to uh, being disenfranchised for whatever reason. You can go online and you can find a group that's going to believe what you believe and affirm that. And it will just exacerbate that hatred or that idea to the point where, in many cases, there's a call to action. And 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 unfortunately, that's it's it's everybody has the opportunity to be to um, get that um, you know unconscious bias by going in and finding finding like people, and then they're going to affirm over and over and over again, no matter how crazy your idea is and no matter how ra- radical you get, 
you're going to get a constant affirmation and to the point where it's literally you are living in a fantasy world that's been affirmed by people living in a fantasy world. That, that makes it very difficult and very dangerous and um, to deal with. And, and unfortunately, that's the Internet, right? I mean, uh, anybody can be a news reporter now and, and spread information and you read it online and there's how do you disprove a, a fact that's not that's that's it's negative, you know? This proving the negative is, is a lot harder. So um, anyway, so that's that's one of the uh, the challenges that we live today. And, and I think the reason why we live in a very dynamic and dangerous world today that did not exist 20 years ago. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. I mean, just the sheer um, amount of bizarre conspiracy, let alone, let alone extremism, just bizarre conspiracy theories and um, frankly, insane information you can find online. And as you're saying, then you can, you can then just put yourself in an echo chamber that just affirms and reinforces it. I'm kind of a, you know, an, an amateur historian of, uh, bizarre conspiracy theories. And one of the, the more recent ones I ran across was, uh, uh, the Tartaria conspiracy theory that believes that, the world's fair buildings built in the world's fair um you know throughout the u.s in the 1800s early 1900s were evidence of a pre-existing super advanced civilization that used to be in the united states and it's totally ridiculous but there's people out there that make youtube videos on this and write articles and the whole nine yards and not exactly extremism or terrorism but just an example of how you can immerse yourself in something completely bizarre and find it uh, affirmed by others out there online so um yeah a huge challenge and one that i don't know we have easy answers to right now um um, and it's something that's going to continue to be challenging moving forward um well, I want to I want to close out. You know, uh, it's almost the end of the year. We're looking ahead to the new year. It's a time when, you know, it's, it it feels right to be optimistic about the future. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, in, in closing, uh, what are what are some reasons to be optimistic? And when we look at national security and and the fight against financial crime, what's encouraging you? What's what's making you you know look forward to the future? Yeah, you know, and and you know, I've. I've been a little bit of a Debbie Downer here talking about the challenge, right, of, of, uh, of um, what we face today with sophisticated transnational criminal organizations. But I'm actually very excited. You know, I have children. They're adult children now, and they will have children. And, I'm, and while they will face challenges um, that are unique and different to the, the challenges I may face as a, as a child, let's not forget, when I grew up, when I was in elementary school, we had bomb shelter you know, drills where we got underneath our desk because of the Cold War and we thought that we might one day be bombed, right? So um, we have all in our generation have faced unique challenges. Um, and, and But I'm very optimistic because, as you mentioned, technology brings opportunity. And I think that law enforcement and the government and financial institutions and corporate America are, in, are utilizing technology greater than ever before, right? Um, and so for every challenge becomes an opportunity for law enforcement. And I would see it like, right, you know, the world's going to fall when everybody got cell phones because how are we going to be able to do, you know, wiretaps? And, and it was so difficult in the early days of cell phones. And then they passed the uh, legislation that required couriers to be able to provide that to law enforcement. And it became easier than ever. Right. So for every challenge becomes an opportunity. And what I've seen is the embracement of technology by our law enforcement at every level, 
greater and better than ever before. And the evolution of technology is going so fast that it provides just rapid more and more advancement and opportunities. So I, I, I'm very optimistic, right? Yes, the challenges are going to be continuous. They're going to evolve. And we have to keep our eye on the ball. But also there are some amazing work being done in financial institutions, corporate America, the government. Absolutely, yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree, and I think that's a great uh, that's a great kind of closing. And you know, in working with uh, institutions and working with the members of our community and uh, with people like you, I'm encouraged every day by what I'm hearing and seeing, and just the great work that you're doing. So, Jim, uh, thank you for being on this program, and uh, and thank you for everything you've done to uh, to secure the nation over the course of your career, and are are still doing here today. So, uh, it's been a real pleasure having this uh, conversation with you. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thanks for having me on. And uh, thanks to our listeners out there. Really appreciate your time and attention. And as a reminder, you can find the Financial Crimecast on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. Well, there's a lot of them out there. I can't guarantee we're on all of them, but we're on most of them, Apple uh, Podcasts, Spotify, and many others. So uh, please join us again for another episode of the Financial Crimecast. Again, my, uh, my guest has been Jim Dinkins from Thomson Reuters Special Services, and it's been a fantastic conversation around the present reality and the future of American security. So thanks again for joining us. Goodbye, everyone.